Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, stories by leaders for leaders to help you to raise the bar on your own performance and to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's episode. Welcome. This is Hugh Ballou. Welcome to this episode of the Nonprofit Exchange. Almost eight years, 300 episodes, really good conversations with leaders from many areas of expertise, leaders that represent a lot of perspectives, a lot of wisdom. And what I found is some of my wisdom comes from things that I did that maybe it wasn't just right. It was what some people call mistakes, but I call them learning opportunities. So our, our guest today is um, uh, a published author, an expert in the area of fundraising. He's a uh, CFRE, and he's going to tell you a little bit about what that is. And then we're going to delve into the eight principles of fundraising, which is what's in his book. So we will be talking about a lot of different things today. So stay tuned, take notes. Larry Johnson, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. And tell people a little bit about who Larry is and what's your passion for this work. Hugh, it is a pleasure to be here and to be with you and to get quizzed, drilled, or whatever by the audience. I'm looking forward to it, actually. This is going to be fun. You know, if you aren't having fun, why are you doing this? All right, that's my number one statement. But who am I? Well, um, I'm a guy who was uh, born in Nashville, Tennessee, grew up there, went to school there, finished my schooling in New England. And I worked in the Northeast for a number of years and then moved out here to the Rocky Mountains about 12 or 14 years ago. Um, I love it out here. This is the, the Western lifestyle. Um, my wife and I have trail horses. I have a Harley Davidson. <laughs> I'm enjoying myself immensely. Um, and uh, I live in the Boise Valley in Idaho, which um, according to the uh, New York Times and Wall Street Journal is the happening place. So I'll just uh, take it for that. So what have I done professionally? Well, I was, um, I was in uh, corporate life for a few years. I'm an engineer by training, um, at least part of that, and uh, worked for a large corporation, Fortune, uh, Fortune 50 company, but I didn't like what I was doing. And um, I was involved in alumni affairs with my alma mater. And someone said to me, you can make a living at this. And I said, really? I knew nothing about that. That was all new to me. So, you know, long story short, and I was recruited by the then original Ketchum, uh, which is sort of the inventor of the modern capital campaign, uh, was the top of the heap for many, many years, one of the founders of what's now the Giving Institute. And um, they were very good to me. They uh, trained me for a year and a half before I was really productive, and I learned a lot of what I know through them. It also influenced me a little later, I'll tell you about that. But then I went from there into higher education because higher ed is, generally speaking, has the most sophisticated fundraising programs in the country, the ones that you know really generate money, although that's changing, as we can see. Um, I was there for 15 years. I served four universities or colleges as chief advancement officer, and then I decided I'd had enough. Um, and then I founded my own firm in 07. I wrote the book, The Eight Principles in 12, and then the rest is history. What I do now, um, I do what I really want to do. And that is um, I've created an experiential training platform 
for <clears throat> teaching the fundamental principles of philanthropy, because very few nonprofits really understand those, either by deliberate or by accident. But when you really understand them, that's when your fundraising just explodes. It just goes up and up. I have people on the philanthropy side of the house tell me that there are hundreds of millions, maybe a billion dollars in untapped philanthropy that's just sitting out there. And I don't mean what's been accounted for in donor advice funds. Oh, no, mm -mm, no. We're talking about money that's just out there waiting to be engaged. And the number one reason, nonprofits haven't really embraced a model that works with these people. And that's that's what my goal is, is to um, make this training available to people in a very affordable way, uh, put it inside their organizations. They can do it themselves. You don't need me. Um, and that's my passion, because here, here's the deal. Most people think fundraising is I've got a, I've got a mission, a worthy mission, and I need money for it. So I'm going to go out here and get it and apply it. No, no, no. If you want to be transformational, if you want to raise more money and do more things than you ever dreamed possible, and I'm serious about that, here's the model. It's two parties coming together to do something that neither can do alone. And if you think about that, you're one party. The other party are the investors or the donors. It's the two of you coming together. So when you really let that sink in, you realize you're offering something to your donors that they really want. They want to be a part of that. They want to see you succeed, but then you have to treat them as investors. Um, so that was kind of a long way, Hugh, but you kind of opened the door to that. So I gave it to you anyway. That is a good um, insight into your passion and your expertise. And this is a topic that everybody talks about but everybody approaches, <laughs> I'm trying to be careful in a dysfunctional way. So uh, the way we, um, the way we do nonprofit fundraising sucks, suck is halfway to success. So you get halfway, <laughs> you, haven't, you haven't done it. I stole that from Jeff McGee. <laughs> I'm going to remember that. <laughs> you can steal it from me. So I don't know why this is showing up this way, but it's the eight the eight sustainable, eight principles of sustainable fundraising. And um, it's got to hit the lights. So, so what was the inspiration? I, I, the subtitle for this is transforming fundraising anxiety into the opportunity of a lifetime. So what I'm hearing is there's a paradigm shift. And <laughs> we use this word and this word sucks too. It's nonprofit. It puts us in this scarcity mindset and this minimalist functioning. And we think we can't do things that other for-profit businesses can do. We're in a for-purpose tax-exempt enterprise that we generate proceeds. They're not profit for our pockets, but we've got we to feed the cows to get the milk. We've got to put gas in the car if we're going to drive this engine. So first, I want to go through the principles and just ask you about them. But I recommend this book to anybody that's working in the charitable uh, realm, whether you're, you're in a faith-based religious organization, education, a, a membership group like a chamber or something like that, or a community-based charity, we get anxious about talking about money because we think it's about us and we don't want to ask for anything. So Larry, you wrote this book. It's full of really good stuff. It's a have-to book for everybody's library. Why did you decide to write this book? 
Well, I originally decided to write it because there was nothing out there that really described this paradigm in a very simple, straightforward way. Um, if you know, let's take boards for instance. Uh, no, for purpose organization boards, and I'm gonna I'm gonna love that because because I want to say nonprofit is simply a tax status. It is not a business model. All right, it is not a business model. It is a tax status, which actually gives for purpose organizations a leg up. They don't have the burden of taxes. So let's th that's even more reason. But to answer your question. Um, uh, there was nothing out there specifically for volunteers, i.e. board members, to really understand what fundraising is about and their role in it. And that was the original impetus for writing it, uh, because they're, you know, they need their trend. They can be transformative in, in an organization when they realize what is really going on and how their role in it unfolds. So it's written all in, in standard English. There are no fundraising terms in it, but I didn't dumb it down. Uh, for those of you who are Apple people, it's like an Apple computer. It's very sophisticated, but the complexity is behind the screen, not in front of it. And so that's what I worked very hard to achieve. And people have told me that. So I feel gratified that I succeeded on that part. Um, and then as a result of that, as a result of the book, that's when I decided, okay, we need to turn this into a training platform that can be replicated and scaled so that people can take these ideas and, and put them inside their organization. Because until this came along with the ability to put it inside through a trainer that, you, that we train, it's very simple. Um, the only way to get this information was two ways, either a white shoe consultant who would come periodically at very handsome fee or one person to a conference periodically. Well, that's not going to give you a paradigm shift in an organization, you know, you know, maybe, maybe one time in 10,000, but that's about it, you see, because I've been that white shoe consultant, I've been paid very nice fees, and I've seen some very great work, only to see the same organizations back on the ropes two years later. Well, what happened? Well, personalities changed, people changed, attitude changed. There was nothing that was ongoing that kind of kept them on the straight and narrow. I think in, in transparency, um, we're having some ongoing conversations about collaborations, and we want to certainly um, make your tools available for the wider nonprofit audience that we have. And we're sort of starting that with this interview today, just to let people know that um, there's something of value here. But you're right. We, we, we want to bring in somebody, and I, I facilitate board retreats and, and such. Um, and people want the miracle retreat. It's going to change everything. Well, that's, 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 that's part of a process. It's an event, but it's part of an ongoing process. You've, you started it. This could be a pivot. It could be a transformation, the beginning of a transformation, but it happens over time. And I find that if somebody wants to work with me in, in an organization, we need to work for a year in order to learn it, to digest it, to apply it, and then to make it permanent because we've had so much history that's led us in a wrong direction we need the opportunity to change it. And what you provide is ongoing resources for people. That, that's a way that the whole culture can, can have continuous upgrades. Did I understand that correctly? Yes, absolutely. That's what we do. And it's all done in plain language. You know, it, it isn't hocus pocus or acronyms. Yeah, we, we're, we're, the expert comes in and throws around all these acronyms being important and we get lost. So let's let's unpack this this eight principles. Now okay. I, love, I love the subtitle, and you start out 
right away transforming fundraising anxiety. Now that's rampant. I find everybody gets all uptight. And when we present, we, we present like a corporate, corporate uh, philanthropist, we treat them like an ATM machine. <laughs> because we don't know what else to do or or a leper and we're afraid to get too close so so you started out let's hit this nail on the head so tell us the little i'm going to go to go through this and if you don't mind give us a little context for each of these because these are all key points so we start with this tra uh, transforming fundraising anxiety tell us a little bit about what we're going to learn there well you're going to learn um, that when you figure out, truly understand, and that's different from giving lip service to it, that fundraising and its mirror image philanthropy are not about money. <clears throat> They're about people. Then you begin to understand that you're not asking for money. You're inviting people to participate in a project that's much larger than they are. And people who are generous by nature, who want to be philanthropically engaged, that's the coin of the realm to them. That's worth more than their money, a lot more than their money. And so that's the key. And when you figure that out, you realize you're inviting, you're not asking, you're giving them an opportunity. And not every, it's like inviting people to a party. Not everyone's going to come for one reason or the other, but those who do will be so thrilled and pleased that you've done it. Um, you're not, you should, well, you don't approach it as dunning people or, trying to get left up. One, one of the things that, that, that nonprofits do when they make it about money, they go around collecting what I call hush and go away gifts. And what's a hush and go away gift? There is a lot of money out there, Hugh, a lot of money. Okay. Much more than most nonprofit execs can even imagine. Really, truly. Okay. I've seen it. All right. I'm not just whistling, you know, whistling in the dark here, but, um, when they go in and they go in with an attitude of fear and they go in and they think about, okay, how much am I going to ask you for? Um, well, I want a number that I'm comfortable with. Well, unless you're one of the very few people who are running a nonprofit who are also having independent income, you're going to think in low terms. Well, I, I could, I could ask for 10,000 Hughes, you know, you know, he belongs to the country club and, you know, he's a wealthy attorney, you know, and, and okay, well, I can do that. Well, when I come to you and I pitch you, Hey, Hugh, you know, I'm with the XYZ social justice group this year. And you know what my, my, my drill is, and I'm hoping you'll participate. And uh, I'm going to ask you for 10 grand this year. Here's the calculus you're going through. Well, first of all, Larry just hit me up. He didn't try to engage me. All right. But it's a worthy cause. So I don't want to blow him off. So I'm going to write the 10 grand because that's an absolute pittance of what I could do if I was engaged. So I'm just thrilled at my 10 grand and I run home thinking what a great deal I've done. And you've said to yourself, yeah, just don't let the door hit you in the rear when you, when you leave. Anyway, that's, that's once and done. You see, that happens so many times. You see? So when you invert that, you don't even go in and talk about money per se. Yeah, you get around to it because money's a part of it, but that's not the deal. And when you can, when you can really, in, you know, that's what the first part of it is. Now, you want to go through the principles? Yes, I do. I do. So All right. Number one, um, donors are the drivers. 
Donors are the drivers. They are driving the philanthropic enterprise. They are the they are the engineers of the train. They're running the locomotive. All right, and uh, and why? Because it's their money, and they're the ones that are going to be providing the resources. Remember that money is nothing more than fuel. That's all it is. In fact, that's one of the things that's that holds most people back is they have a dysfunctional view of money. And that's one of the things we train people in is how to get over that. But donors are the drivers. So they are in the driver's seat, all right? The very best you can do is be in the seat of the navigator. That's the very best you can do. So if you're there as the navigator, whoa, they're your partner. A lot of organizations manage to get into the back seat, but you gotta be careful because that's backseat driving. But if you're really, really not quite making it, you're in the trunk. You don't have any input. They just throw a little money at you as they drive down the road. They are driving this train. That's the first thing. It's not about us. And that's the thing you have to get over. Two things. Um, let's define philanthropy. Um, technically, comes from two words, love and humankind. Philanthropy. Philios and anthropos, two yeah. Greek words. And uh, philios is uh, brotherly love. And anthropos is the generic mankind. It means all humanity. So it's literally for the love of humanity. That's really what it means. And, and it's not about money. It's what no. you're trying to say. It's about purpose. Okay. It's about we, purpose. We think philanthropists are only money people, but there's many aspects to it. So the other, the other piece is, um, just escape me, but I'm going to go on the second principle. So begin, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you haven't figured out who this person is that you're talking to. So you haven't respected who they are. That's and right. The person is in the driver's seat. So what you've encouraged me to do is spend, besides doing your homework, besides learning about them, let them tell me something. Oh. And as you noted, when we had you introduce yourselves, we find out things that aren't written in people's resume when we do that. And it's much more fascinating. So oh, it's a lot more fun. Principle one is the donors of the drivers. That's profound. Now, wait a minute. Number two is begin at the beginning. What's that about? Begin at the beginning is when you start down this road of looking for philanthropic support, the philanthropic partners, investors, that's who you're looking for. See, you're not looking for money per se, you're looking for partners, investors. When you start down that road, even if we were like a startup in an entrepreneurial for-profit situation, you know, you're looking at people that are going to invest in you for one reason or the other, all right? Well, begin at the beginning is you have to craft a message that will be understood by those from whom you intend to seek support. Think about that. Not in your own terminology, not in your own lens, but what's their lens? How are they going to perceive this? You know, I mean, you can just go to a nonprofit website after nonprofit website after nonprofit website, and it, it, it they read like you know like IRS instructions. Uh, oh, talk about boring! You know, it's just it's all this text or it's this or it's that. They've gotten a little better, but still, remember you have to figure out who is going to naturally support you, and that's a that's a different principle we're getting there. Um, but first, you've got to create that craft that message and put it in there vocabulary, not yours. Next one is leadership leads. Now, one of the pivot points in the early 1900s was Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. And he lists the 13 attributes of wealth. And money is the last one, he said, because it's the least important. So there are many other factors that lead to it. So we step up 
as a leader and a leader is a person who makes things happen. So leadership leads, what's that about? It's really um, about the leadership of the organization. It's primarily the governing board. Um, um, there's a, a lot of dysfunction with uh, charitable institutions, governing boards, because either they're, they're, it's not clear what they're supposed to be doing, um, or they're not char properly charged or properly chosen. There's a lot of you know, um, sort of what I call patronage sort of uh, uh, or category kind of recruiting. That's not what it's about, because board membership is a responsibility, not a reward. No, you should have all the features of the of the of the the, te the professions and the skills that you're looking for represented on that group because they are the leader people look to them the outside world looks to them that's one of the first things they do is they want to see who's on this board do i know anybody on there do they have you know what about the reputation what are they doing you know and so that's why there are only three things that charitable organization governing boards should be doing number one setting policy Number two, promoting and advocating for that organization to everyone they know. And three, providing adequate resources to deliver the mission. And in most of these charitable organizations, that piece, some of it involves fundraising. Uh, there are other, you know, other revenue streams. But, and so that's where they need to be. And so people will follow the leader. And if the leaders aren't committed, if they don't demonstrate commitment, if they de don't demonstrate that passion, well, no one else is going to get excited about it. They're not going to put their money in it. And that's exactly why I started Center Vision Leadership Foundation. We got to equip leaders to raise the bar on their own performance. Now, we're presenting to people who have been successful. And this, these resources we're asking for didn't jump in their pocket unless they inherited it. But they have a business ear and eye, and they're looking at you through that lens. So if you don't have a high-performing, fully active donating board of directors, that's that's a barrier, isn't it? Well, it's a key barrier because let's look at, remember I mentioned donors being investors. They are investing in your cause or your cause, but not for the reason you might think. It's not about you. They're investing for their own sort of enlightened self-interest. They want to see certain things happen they want to see have certain impact. They want to participate in that impact. So they are looking for that return. Now, in the for-profit in the for-profit world, for sure, it's very easy to measure that return. They're looking. It's 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 financial. It's term based. It's all defined. Pure. In fact, in some ways, that's simpler to deal with. But when you're dealing with a philanthropic investor, your your goal is to figure out either as a group or individuals what these people are looking for in return and then give it to them in spades. And if you can do that, you'll have more resources than you can possibly ever use. I'm, I'm not, I'm not kidding with that. So it's framing it rather than return on investment, it's return on impact. It's, it's what, what's going to happen as with people's lives. We're, we're, we're really in the transformation business, aren't we? We're transforming people's lives for the work we do. Well, and that's why when you ask, if you ask someone, um, for, let's say you ask, uh, let's get up to the higher levels. You ask someone to help you build this certain program, and then you ask them for such a low ball number, they know you can't do it for that. Well, they're not going to invest in that. Yes. Like, like that says to them, you're incompetent. That's what that translates to them because they know what it's going to cost, or if they don't know, they have a pretty good idea. And 
when I was in, in institutional life, that was always my barrier, not getting donors to think in high enough terms. It was getting the internal people to think in high enough terms. That was the real obstacle. I see that over and over, Larry. It's just this, this minimalist thinking. Oh, no, we can't do that. Well, why not? Um, and I hear what you're saying from many, many professional fundraisers that the private foundations and the net, high net worth individuals have lots of resources, but they don't can't find a worthy place to leave it. Um, so next principle is learn and plan. Oh, wow. All right. Learn and plan. Well, first you need to learn who is naturally going to support you. You know, what is the profile of your ideal donor? And this is where um, a lot of tools can help you, uh, tech tools, what have you, but also something simple like interviewing people and asking them what they would support and what they won't support. But you need to learn what that profile is first and then plan on how to reach out to those people. You know, how many organizations do we know that treat fundraising as, you know, as, as, as buckshot, just blast it up against the barn and see what sticks? All right. That's incredibly expensive and it's very inefficient. You get now in these days, you're getting maybe less than 1% return on that kind of thing where you just, it's just some general list that you just kind of blast out there and hope for the best. You know, let's face it, you know, not everybody's going to support your wonderful organization. And that doesn't make it any less valuable. It just means not everyone's going to do that. Even generous people, you know, there are plenty of generous people, but they'll say, no, thank you. You know, that doesn't make them ungenerous. It just means that what you do isn't in their passion set. So you need to figure out what that profile person is. I mean, there'll be people that support you a little bit after that, but you want to know who that person is. And then you can go and create a plan that makes sense to reach out to those people. Amen. And, and it's like the, I'm a conductor. I don't step on the podium without that piece of paper, which is the plan. It's the musical plan. It's really an engagement tool, but it lets everybody know how to play into that that space. So it's, you know, we under undervalue that. And it's so essential, Larry. I think it's one of, one of the top ones I like. Well, they're in the bad one here. They're all powerful. The next one is work from the inside out. What does that mean? Well, fundraising is, is really a top-down, inside-out affair. What I mean by that is you have to start with the leadership. They're at the top of the pyramid there. And then as you build your support, you build it in concentric layers or concentric circles, and you focus on what you know you can influence, not what you are concerned about. You focus on the center. And with each center, as you secure that, that level, that, that, that circle of influence, that circle of, 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 of working, then you continue to move it out over time. And that's, that's how you build an unbeatable machine. Because notice the, the title of the book, Sustainable Fundraising. I'm not talking about once and done galas or gimmicks or tricks or, you know, or raising it for a once and done hurricane or something like that. Those are all things that raise money for various reasons. I'm talking about creating a program that sustains itself, that grows over time, and that is literally impervious to economic downturns. Let's go back to the pandemic. All right. Perfect example. If you were an organization that was in up to their eyeballs on what I call transactional fundraising, traditional event fundraising, you were in a bad way really fast. But if you looked at the organizations that did well during that period, even prospered, it were those people who already built a program like the one I'm describing. 
transactional fundraising. Quid pro quo. You ask for something, I give you something. Very fragile, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's very susceptible to any sort of economic downturn. Um, you know, when there's, you know, when we had the, uh, um, um, the, the, the collapse in 09, I was working with a client, very high end, very high, high profile client, 60% or 70% of their income came from an annual wine auction. Yike. Well, what happens when, when the stock market goes, goes south? How many $2,500 bottles of wine is someone going to buy? Not many, okay? If that's their only connection. And so there you go. You're going to drink the old wine out of the cellar before you buy any new wine. <laughs> Divide and grow. Oh, now this is, this is, the, this is the, essentially the principle that says treat different donors differently. Okay, and the differences between donor are their life experience, their likes, their dislikes, their um, their their income level, how much they like you. Uh, those are all the variables that go into this and uh, in, in treating people differently, um, because people go through natural stages in life. They have kids. They go to they they you go to college. They may get divorced. They may have business failures. All these things. Uh, they have different interests. You know, how, how clearly do they align with you? So when you figure that out and here again, you know, there are plenty of tools that aren't that expensive these days to help you do that. Um, then you can create a program or what we call, um, and we have a, we have a course, we talk about this It's called creating the pathway because, and I, this is, I knew this anecdotally for years, and then the research was done uh, at Texas Tech a few years ago uh, by Russell James that demonstrated this, you know, numerically. And that is when you create a, a metaphorical path that brings your donors closer to you emotionally. Notice how I emphasize that word: their emotional connection with you, to the point where they have made at least one gift out of an asset. It can be a small gift as opposed to simply out of income, you've achieved, and when you get about 20% of that baseline that does that, that's what sets your program into, into an upward trajectory, sometimes exponential in growth over time, because it, it explodes on itself. And it also creates an incredible um, uh, resistance to economic downturns when you've done that. But you have to, it, but you, you've brought them, you've purposely done that. And that's for instance, and that's what divide and grow is. You're looking for high levels of renewability. You're looking for growing their, their connection to you over time, raising their level of giving to their natural capacity. This is all what that does. So in the book, The Art of War, it, it says in there amongst other things, know your enemy. So if you use that principle, know your donor. Now, some donors, business-like, you go in, you made an appointment, okay, sit down, tell me what you want. It's bottom line. They want to, it's sort of across the vest, boom. Other, other people, they want to talk about family, how you doing? There's, there's a relationship piece that they want to, they want you to earn the right to ask for it. So how do we know the difference in those two approaches? Very distinctly different personalities. Well, I go in specifically to learn what interests them. In fact, for instance, as an example, um, I, wor I worked with a, um, a donor who was actually a board member of a university. Um, he qualified as a curmudgeon, Hugh. He really did. And uh, he, had, he had this sort of radar out there about people asking him for money, 
all right? Um, he was, um, 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 you know, uh, very well, very well off, um, just retired CEO, a stockholder held utility, um, took, even though I was, even though he was on the board and I was the chief advancement officer at the university, it took me six weeks to get, to get a, uh, to get an appointment with him. Well, I finally got in there. And when he realized that I wasn't in there to ask him for money, oh, then we could talk. You see, I said to him, I said, Bernie, I'm not here to ask you for money today. No, no, that's what I'm here for. You know, I want to get to know you. And so I just simply threw the question out there. And this, this is this, you just never know what you're going to get back. You know, Bernie, here's your, here's your situation in life. And I know you're a generous guy, even though I thought he was really pretty damn stingy. I just, I, you know, I said, you're a generous guy. And, and I just said, you know, what do you want to accomplish? What do you want to do? Just threw it out there. Well, that just opened a whole door for him. No one had ever asked him that question before. All he got was come ons. And I just left the door open and he started talking and I learned things about him I would have never learned otherwise. I learned that both of our dads were firemen. Um, I learned that he had a severely disabled daughter that was living at home as an adult and that was his real concern and passion in life. I didn't even know that. The president of the university didn't even know that. Okay, this is what I'm talking about. And then he, he had the proverbial golden parachute. And he was, you know, all exercised over tax avoidance and what to do with it. And he'd hired this, you know, this battery of accountants and attorneys. He actually felt trapped by these people. And when I said to him, I said, Bernie, these people would do anything you tell them to do. They're working for you. That was a Think about this. This is a man whose whole career was telling other people what to do. And yet he felt trapped. And this is how a lot of people with means are. They feel trapped. They don't, they want to have impact. They want to make a difference. They don't know how. And so when, the, when people come at them with these come-ons, you know, immediately the walls go up. Well, this is good stuff. Um, now, folks, just make a note. You heard it right here. Your, your new board position that you don't have, that you ought to have is the curmudgeon. All right, renew and refresh. That's the next, we've got two more. We're gonna, these are just great. So renew and refresh. Well, um, uh, read, the, read the, the, there's a little quotes at the beginning of each chapter. Read the quote at the beginning of that chapter. Okay, I was just reading the summary here, but here we go. Um, it says, love me tender, love me sweet, Never let me go. Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley. That's renew and refresh. You know, we ought to be loving our donors tenderly, sweetly, never let them go. And then okay, people will die. People will change interest. And so you will have to replenish over time. That's why refresh is separate. That's donor acquisition in, in the technical term. And renew is to renew. Think about this. Think about this for a minute. The overall first time renewal rate, that means that if I made a gift this year to your, to your charity, I do it again next year, is under 40%. That's pathetic, Hugh. Let's compare that. The first year renewal rate in the consumer products world is 95%. Think about that. I tell people that that individuals are more loyal to their toothpaste than they are the charity. 
and G. <laughs> B and G has got it figured out. All right. They know how to keep a customer. All right. They know how to do that. Okay. So I tell, you know, these wonderful charitable organizations, take a page out of Procter and Gamble's book. Look and see what they do. See how they do it. It ain't rocket science. And part of it is simply treating people with respect and and including them in what you do. You know, the problem with common sense is it's not very common. So folks, we're going to do a longer interview today because this is such good stuff. So um, Warren Buffett said, anything not worth doing well is not worth doing. So the last of the eight principles, invest, integrate, and evaluate. You have to invest in your program. Uh, you have to put money into it, but you need to put it in there in a strategic way, not a haphazard way. Um, too many nonprofits see uh, the, the, the funds that go into their fundraising program as the same as, same as paying the utility bill. Those are two complete different things. Utilities are expenses. Fundraising, fundraising, fundraising um, uh, funds ought to be investments. You ought to be able to measure that. And they're quantifiable returns on the different methods. You should know what they are. Uh, integrate um, your, your loyal supporters. What they need from you is a single unified message and approach in keeping them part of the fold. You know, keep it going, coming at them from six different directions at random times really weird you lose their attention they're weary and they can be very confused um and then of course you know if you if you have if you have a big organization or i think well probably independent schools are the worst at this they they solicit their parents every three weeks or something they nickel and dime them to death uh and the ones that have figured this out that you don't do that they're the ones that are raising all the money um, because uh, donor, you know, being asked too often and inappropriately or at the wrong time is the number one negative. And then the last one is, how many people I have worked with that say to me, well, we've always done it that way. Well, my response is, well, why aren't you defunct already? Why aren't you, you know, extinct? Because that's a prescription for death. You've got to always be evaluating, did this work? Did this doesn't work? And it goes back to something we talked at the very beginning. You need to be willing to take risks, calculated risks, that will not deliver what you're looking for, because that's how you're going to get better. Um, uh, I, there's an organization, because I don't want to call out names, that does this very well. They are a charity that does potable water projects. They actually post their failures on their website. When they first did that, you know, their board and their staff were like almost going into, into apoplexy. Ugh. You know what happened when they did that? Their donations went up? Tenfold in two years. My mind. You know why? It said to the serious investors, these people are trying everything to get better. We want to make sure they succeed. You know, transparency and vulnerability are two very underutilized leadership resources right behind listening. <laughs> so you've, you've given us the, the prescriptive to change our future in organizations. So what is the, um, what's the primary limiter uh, for organizations fundraising efforts? What's stopping them? Um, I mentioned it earlier. It's a dysfunctional view of money. Mm -hmm. They attach all sorts of qualities to it that it doesn't have. Um, they're afraid of it. They think it's 
good, bad, evil, I don't want to deal with it, whatever. Uh, it's simply fuel. That's all it is. And the people who are in a position to invest, who have disposable income at any level, and are going to be philanthropic at any level, see it like that. They see it as a way to, to help you or to help what they see as an important thing to do, not you personally, or even the organization necessarily. Um, and especially now, you know, I'm a boomer and, you know, uh, our parents especially gave because it was the institutional thing to do. And then boomers did a lot of that, but you know, that's not the case anymore. People are much more focused on specific sorts of outcomes and things like that. Uh, and it could be organization A, B, C, or D, depending on who's doing the best job. Uh, but yeah, dysfunction. Uh, one of the things we do in our workshops uh, is we test, we, we, we have a, an exercise that measures cynicism related to money. It's, um, it can be very eye-opening. Because so, if you're cynical about money, it's going to really adversely affect your ability to raise money. So you've said it twice so far. Let's say it again. What's the biggest limiter for fundraising? Having a dysfunctional view of money. Yes, yes, uh, that's that's a money shadow. It's a, it's one of the the big myths. You know, the, the word nonprofit isn't a philosophy. That's a myth. The other myth is we can't spend money on marketing. We can't spend money on on development. We can't spend money on salaries, and we can't take risks. We have all these myths that you know you lose a little money in the project, and everybody gets all in a hissy fit. Disney has a flop. It's $200 million down the train. That's the old numbers. They're, they're higher now. Nobody blinks. But we have all these myths that we have embodied. And what you've done is address those, not as myths, but in a substantive way to rethink all of this and to build skills to access what's available. God's given us abundance. And we think in scarcity. What's wrong with that picture? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with that picture. Um, I also work on the other side of the fence. That is the philanthropic, philanthropist, wealth side of the fence. And um, I have a couple of friends that are philanthropic brokers. Well, what's a philanthropic broker? It's an individual who has a business and their sole business is to manage the philanthropy of people who want to give their money away. And, uh, and they've been given guidelines. And this is not donor advice funds. This is direct things. They tell me that there's an estimate of between 500 million and 1 billion additional dollars out there that are simply sitting on the sidelines because nonprofits don't have the imagination or the skills to engage the people who want to give it. I had one, I had a, a, one of these men to challenge me. He said, Larry, you can't get, find a nonprofit executive with enough imagination to come ask me for this money. Well, I was able to find one, but only because he challenged me. I normally don't get involved in that, that matchmaking kind of thing. But that's my point. Last year, $4.5 billion was given to philanthropy, and that included all the money that was committed to DAFs, donor donor advice funds. All right. Imagine another billion, another 25% on top of that that's simply sitting out there, sitting out there. Um, Besides the limiter of the dysfunction, there's also the limiter of lack of capacity of the leader to lead and the board to to be the board. So there's a there's a functional limiter that we don't yes. we can't see, and and it's the same functional limiter that's in major corporations that cost them 
500 billion dollars according to the gallup survey in lost profits oh, yeah. it, it's invisible in their operations mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know that so as a as a i want to ask you to a tip you want to leave leave people with but before we do that uh, what's the outlook long and short term for philanthropy in where we are north america I'm not a very good prognosticator, but I will certainly, because uh, I, I have my own bias, as everyone does. Um, short term, you're going to see the numbers continue to go up, albeit not as much as they could. Long term, I'm hopeful. And I'm hopeful that you're going to see a resurgence of more relational fundraising. And the reason I say that is you look at the younger generations and this is something they really crave. They want to be connected to you. Um, when I was first getting into this business several years ago, we won't say just how many, um, uh, you never got a involvement question out of um, a donor unless they were talking six figures. You know, you never got that, well, what's this, you know, what kind of return, blah, blah, blah. You get that now for a gift of fifty dollars from from a millennial, or and and they wanted it in a text message too. Now, how about that? So, and that's kind of an adjustment for yours truly. Okay, I've tried to adjust with the times. You know, I'm you know I I'm I'm not using DOS, okay, <laughs> or or anything like that. So I'm actually all Apple here, and the A principles are all Apple. You know, Apple's are in the other room; they're here. We're all Apple. Uh, all of our platforms are built on Apple. But anyway, um, that's what I would uh, hopeful. Um, I think you're seeing a blowback, a pushback already with what's known as philanthropic capitalism. Um, and not so much in this country, but you're going to see it soon. And for those of you who wonder what I'm talking, I'm talking about the super wealthy who want to come and impose their idea of a solution using their money, uh, top down. That would be B Gates, Bezos, these kind of people. Um, uh, one of the things that I didn't mention is next year, the eight principles is going to be going into India. Uh, and we're going to be because our you know, human nature is universal. They have a growing philanthropic sector there. Just about three months ago, India, the Indian parliament passed a law that uh, eliminated that kind of money. They don't want Mr. Gates's money anymore. They don't want Mr. Mr. Uh, Bezos outside money anymore. They want their own money to develop it. So I think you're going to begin to see more pushback against philanthropic capitalism per se. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's a big deal. That's such a massive deal. So Larry, you sit in a very unique seat in your history, your perspective, your skill set. So we have um, rank and file nonprofit leader, clergy um, sitting there taking this in. Number one, I want to say, get the book, go to not the nonprofit exchange. You can see it link links right to Amazon, the eight principles of sustainable fundraising author, Larry, C. Johnson, CFRE certified fundraising executive. It means you've you've been through the hoops to be certified by one of the credible institutions that um, set the the principles for your profession. Um, what's the tip you want to leave people with? What do they need to think about going forward? When you don't embrace the real joy of this and project that to others. Look, think about what you're cheating donors out of. 
that's what I want you to leave it. You're actually cheating them when you recoil back and you don't approach it with joy. That's the tip I want to leave them with. Profound. Larry Johnson, you've been a wonderful guest today, giving us stuff that's so relevant, so applicable, so reasonable. Get the book, The Eight Principles of Sustainable Fundraising. That's a beginning and there's a lot more. So stay tuned because we'll be, we'll be sharing what, what Larry's doing. So Larry, thank you so much for being our guest today on the Nonprofit Exchange. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for watching the Nonprofit Exchange. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>